All right, well, good morning. Welcome, welcome everybody online. Uh, as you know, my name's Eric Birch. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Uh, so we're going through a series on the Psalms, and today we're gonna do Psalm 29, which is a really cool song in the way that it describes the power of God. Um, so a little bit of context, Psalm 29 was believed to be uh, associated with the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, uh, which celebrated when God came to uh, Mount Sinai and thunder and lightning and spoke to Moses and you know, gave the law and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so they, um, that's what this, this psalm kind of talks about. And um, it has three major elements. There's a small intro, the meat in the middle, and then the closing part of it. And it uses a lot of repetition, as we've seen as we've done uh, in some of the other psalms. Repetition is a regular piece of the psalms to, to emphasize the points that it's trying to make. So depending on which translation you have, um, it's going to either say a scribe, which isn't a word we use a lot, but it means to say that something or to think that something is caused by something or associated with something specifically. Uh, another good word for that, you might see it, might say acknowledge or recognize. Um, that's the idea behind a scribe. And it's used three times in verses one and two. And then the voice of the Lord or the Lord's shout, again, depending on your translation, is used seven times in verses three to nine. Um, so again, a lot of emphasis, and then at the end, in verses 10 and 11, the word the Lord is used four times. So we see this repetition trying to, to build strength and to build emphasis um, in the psalm. Um, all right, so let's get started. Um, so verses 1 and 2, praise is given to God by the angels for his strength, holiness, glory, and the glory of his name. Again, it says in verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in splendor and in holiness. So when I was looking at um, putting together this message, um, it really comes through, and, and so I titled this as saying, We Worship the Power and Glory of the Lord. Um, and that's really what this is talking about, this, this amazing power and glory that God has. And here we see that, um, you know, in verse 1, initially we're talking about the angels doing it, but in verse 2, we're doing it. Um, and if you look at the um, references within Scripture, you'll find literally hundreds of references to the power of God. Um, in all sorts of ways, right? We look at power of the creation, control over nature, all the things that happen to mankind. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. God's strength and glory is, is just manifest throughout his word. Um, and the angels of, of heaven ascribe or acknowledge God's strength, and they acknowledge his glory. Now, the, um, the glory of God is a, is a beauty of spirit. Right? God doesn't have a body. So it, this is not some sort of aesthetic beauty or some sort of material beauty, but it has to do with the beauty that emanates from his character, um, the nature of who he is. Um, and the glory of the Lord is manifested in everything he does, um, and it never passes away. It's eternal. Um, and he's worshipped as holy. And what does it mean to be holy? We hear that a lot. We should be holy. You know, God is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the holiness of God refers to the unparalleled majesty of his incomparable being. I know that's saying a lot. 
but he is blameless, faultless, unblemished moral purity. There is nothing greater or better than God. Um, and it's interesting, you know, just as we say, for instance, that the Bible is truth, not truthful. In other words, this is the source. So is true with God. God is the source of everything. Um, there is nothing you can compare to God and say, well, God is like, right? Because God is God. Other things maybe have characteristics, have similarity, but only God is God. Um, and he's complete and perfect in every possible sense of the word. Um, the other idea that we get from holiness is separation, um, where God is separate from the world. He's separate from the sinful nature of the world. Just as we are called to be holy and blameless um, before God, because we are to separate ourselves um, from every sinful behavior, every sinful thought. Right? We're to separate ourselves to, to be holy before God. Um, and while verse 1 specifically mentions the angels um, ascribing to the Lord, verse 2 extends that requirement to us. We are to worship uh, the power and the glory of the Lord. Um, and as always, Deborah's picked some wonderful songs that just remind us of that, how much we just sing the glory of the Lord, the majesty of the Lord, the power of the Lord. Um, it's interesting, if, uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, David is telling Asaph, who was the lead of the musicians, how he wants them to praise the Lord. And I'm only going to read a part of this because it goes on and on. Uh, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 7 to 11, it says, That day David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. And that goes on for another 25 verses. So, yeah, if you want to say, well, how do I, how do I praise the Lord? How do I, well, go to, go to First, um, Chronicles chapter 16. And there's, like I said, 36 or so verses that suggest how you should go about it. Um, now, verses 3 to 9 kind of form the meat um, of this um, uh, psalm, and I really think it's great how David expresses the power and strength um, of God in a way that is easy to understand for most folks. He uses the metaphor of a thunderstorm, and it's perfect that we're in the middle of monsoon season because we understand what that is. Uh, the one that he picked to describe that was one that actually occurs in that region where they're writing. Um, and it, it really, um, the readers at the time would be fully aware um, of what it is that he's describing. Um, so we'll start with um, Psalm 29, verses 3 to 9. It says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and all in his temple cry glory. Now, 
It's really cool that the way that he describes it, you know, lightning and thunder have been attributed to gods for millennia. Um, the idea that he speaks in this uh, lightning and thunder is, is, a, is in both pagan views as well as, of course, in, in um, biblical ones. Um, but the word picture here kind of provides us with this physical representation of the power of God, right, in this big storm. Um, do we have that map? All right, so the important part of this map is not that you can read the letters, but at the very top of the map is Lebanon. And as you come around the curve there, you'll see where at the very top uh, right it says Damascus. Well, right before that, that little pyramid is what the, verse call, the uh, psalm calls it Syrian, but it's Mount Hebron today. So the storm comes in across Lebanon, right around Mount Hebron, and then down through this. Now, if you notice, there's like the, the um, Jordan goes down between a set of mountains, but the mountains on the right are taller than the mountains on the left, and so the storm tracks all the way down through the valleys here and then out into the desert of the Sinai, what they call it Desert of Kadesh. So this storm is massive that comes down through here and flows out through the Desert of Kadesh. And again, it is an actual storm. Um, and so it, it's, it's cool because they would understand that. They would understand the magnitude of that storm, how big it is. Um, so the storm typically sweeps in off the Mediterranean, um, big storm, um, and it hits the, the hills of Lebanon, which are covered in cedars. Um, and if you know a lot about cedar trees, they have a very rough bark. So the wind catches it and literally strips the bark off of the trees. Um, and so it moves eastward toward Mount Hermon, um, and then it turns south and travels all the way down the whole length of Israel and out into the desert. Um, and so this word picture is really powerful and vivid. You know, they know what he means by this massive storm, all this lightning and thunder crashing down through um, the land. Um, and it's interesting when you look at the verses 3 and 4, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. So the voice of the Lord is over the waters. If you think about Genesis and the creation, right? God is over the waters. And now he's taking that same idea of creation to this storm that is arisen over the ocean. Well, the sea. Mediterranean is only a sea. But if you've been there, it looks pretty big. The, um, but the... <laughs> I know. The, uh, but anyway, so this storm grows up over the Mediterranean, and then it flows in. So God has got this, his voice is over the water. He creates this massive storm that then blows in. Um, and of course, with that, there's thunder and lightning and all the stuff that's going on. Now, when I was a kid, I know, many moons ago, um, I lived in Paradise Valley, which was north of Scottsdale. And back in the day, Phoenix only had like 400,000 400, people. It was a little bitty place. Um, Scottsdale Road, where we live, was dirt. Um, and so there was nothing north of us toward Carefree. And these huge storms would roll in off of the mountains of Carefree and into Paradise Valley. And we had your typical ranch home that had a big porch. And I loved to sit out on that porch and watch these storms roll in. It's amazing, you know, bolts of lightning and 
and, and wind. I mean, remember that you get that you know it's about to rain because that downrush of air occurs. That's how you know rain has changed directions. It's on its way. Um, and you get this big gust of wind in your face. Um, and you know the storm is come, the rain will happen. And when I was in pilot training, I remember I was flying a T-37, which is this little two-engine trainer. Um, and I was flying in, and this is in um, Alabama area, uh, in Mississippi, Alabama. And I made the mistake of flying into a thunderstorm. Um, and I was supposed to be at 5,500 feet, but the next thing I knew, I was at 10.5, popping out of the top of this thunderstorm. Uh, because there's these massive updrafts and downdrafts inside of a thunderstorm. And I remember air traffic control was like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be at 5.5. I'm like, I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> you know, I was on an elevator and here I am, you know. And so it was, um, and I'll tell you what, it's, 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 it's the coolest thing. We used to love and do cloud flying. And, and you literally, you roll in and out of the clouds. Totally cool. But probably kill me now but the um anyway i just loved it and when it we and i was in uh we we're stationed in the philippines and we flew f4s and we flew in in typhoons and stuff like that and it's amazing you got a sixty thousand pound airplane that gets thrown around like a leaf i mean and if you've been in an airliner that gets caught in heavy turbulence this huge airplane is getting just thrown all over the place so it's this great visual of the power of the storm uh, and of course, we're in the middle of monsoons, right? And I you know, love these, watch these storms coming off. And these, I'm not so big on the heavy rain part, but I really like the lightning and thunder part of it. I think that's just really cool when you get these huge bolts of lightning, you know, and, and these big booms of thunder. Um, and so anyway, that's, the, that's this picture that, that David is using here, and it's just really cool. Um, and again, so much about when he talks about the over the waters, he's talking about not just the fact that the storm is coming in over waters, but God has that control over the waters. And we can think of other examples where God stops the storms or you know, all these other things. God controls these huge things. Um, so it's really kind of, it's really a cool picture. Of course, today we know that lightning is created by, you know, air movement between things creating static electricity between the ground and the, and the clouds and lightning goes back and forth and of course thunder is caused by the ionization of air that happens so rapidly that it expands and makes thunder and so it's really cool. I mean now we know what why it's there but that doesn't change the fact that God created it. So while we can, I always love science. To me science is how we explain God. Um, the more we learn the better we learn about God. Uh, the only problem with science is always behind. Um, it doesn't know everything, right? But so now we know why it makes booms, but it's still God making the booms. Um, all right. So then, um, and the other part that's really cool about it is that even though we know what causes it, we are powerless over it. The storm's coming, the storm's coming. There is absolutely nothing you can do about it. Um, and they knew as well. They knew that here comes a storm, run inside right? Um, I know my kids when they were young, when the storm would come, they would hope it rained before the lightning because we wouldn't let them outside if it was lightning, but we'd let them outside if it was raining. And they loved to play in the mud and the rain and just, it was, you know. Um, but boy, once the lightning starts, in you go, right? All right, verses five to seven, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon Leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox, the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. 
So the storm comes ashore and it bends and twists the trees on these hills as it goes into Lebanon. And it's doing so with such size and mass that it literally looks like the, the whole hills are actually moving, that the entire area is moving. Um, you know, like I said, it, that Lebanon leaps like a calf and Syrian or Mount Hermon like a young wild ox. Um, the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The Lord comes ashore violently. Again, the winds twists and bends the trees, stripping off the bark. Um, and the voice of the Lord thunders, accompanied by flashes of lightning. And then the storm finally empties into the desert of Kadesh, which is in eastern Egypt at the end of the Sinai. And he says, the voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Again, this storm is so violent that it travels all the way down through Israel into the desert, and it literally shakes the desert. It's interesting when you've ever been in where lightning is really close and the thunder is really close, it literally shakes you. I remember one time we were taxiing out um, in an F4 and a bolt of lightning hit about 20 feet away in the, ground, in the dirt next to the taxiway and this huge clot of dirt comes up. And well, then of course the, the thunder comes up almost instantly because you're right there. And even though we're inside an airplane with a cockpit, it literally was like, holy smoke. I mean, it was booming. Uh, it was really cool. And um, <laughs> was, yeah, lightning was kind of a weird thing when you're flying because there's a certain coolness to it. There's a certain, please don't hit me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, lightning does bad things to airplanes. Um, all right. So anyway, we get this beautiful picture uh, of the power of the Lord. And David has other psalms that recognize the glory and strength of the Lord. So we read about, for instance, the glory and the strength of heaven in Psalm 8, verses 1 to 2. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Again, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And um, God also sets the sun in its tracks. In Psalm 19, verses 4 to 6, it says, Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And again, there's many, many psalms like that that talk about the power of God and how he created things and how he, and, and, and with such poetry, right? I mean, we think of the, the sun as this bright chariot streaking through the skies, right? And of course, we all know that sun doesn't move, we do, and, you know, but, you know, the glory of it all is really cool, yeah, because he created all that stuff, right? Um, so one of my favorite times, and this is kind of where the, the point of this psalm uh, was used in the Old Testament, is where God is talking to Moses and his people at Mount Sinai. Um, and, you know, if you put yourself in their shoes, you'll kind of get that picture, right? So we read Exodus 19, verses 16 through 18. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke built up 
from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Now, you can imagine this, right? They're looking up this mountain, and all heck is breaking loose. I mean, storms and smokes and lightning, and oh, and it's like, okay, guys, let's go. And <laughs> things anyway, right? And so what do the people say? Uh, Moses, you go up there, talk to God, we'll find out what he wants, and then come tell us. Uh, we'll just stay here. <laughs> you know, they're scared. They have no desire to go up on that mountain, right? It's... Uh, the, um, and, and elsewhere in Scripture, we see the power of God in a storm. Another one of my favorites is the competition between Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal in um, 1 Kings 18. Now, there's, it's a great story, right? If you, if you recall, there's, 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 there's Elijah, and then there's the prophets of Baal. And they, there's a contest, and so they create two altars. And on one altar, the prophets of Baal are supposed to, you know, sacrifice this cow and put it on there. Uh, and then they're going to have Baal come down with lightning and consume the altar. And, of course, they go at it. They're at it, you know, half the day. They're just going to town. And, and Elijah starts teasing them. Oh, well, maybe Baal's asleep. Oh, maybe he's out because he had to use the bathroom, you know. And he just starts teasing them. And they're doing all their crazy stuff and nothing happens. And then Elijah says, okay, my turn. Um, and he goes out there and he dumps water on the altar. Three times he dumps water on the altar. And then he prays to God and this fire comes down from heaven and consumes both altars. Um, and so it's, it's more than just a competition between two gods. It's the proof of a real God. Um, and it's, it's, um, not just the fire from heaven that's significant, but what happens next, right? There's three years of drought, and afterwards comes the rain. And Elijah's like, okay, it's going to rain now. And he's like, they look out there, I don't see anything. Well, look again. I don't see anything. Seven times they go out there and look, right? Seven, magic number in the Bible, so to speak. A lot of significance to number seven. Seventh time they look, what do they see? Dark clouds approaching. Here he comes. And, of course, he ends the drought by bringing in rain. Um, there's, you know, the, the, the key there is, is that to those who worship Baal, he was the lightning and the thunder. Where to those that worship God, he is the source of the lightning and the thunder. He is in control, right? He controlled the fire that came down to heaven to consume the altars. He controlled the rainstorm that came and ended the drought. He's got all of this. He's in control of everything. There's another story right in the next chapter where Elijah is running from Jezebel. So if you know the end, Elijah, after the, the, the um, uh, fire thing, um, he rounds up the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, and kills them. And Jezebel swears, well, I'm going to get you. So now Elijah runs off to hide because he's worried about Jezebel. Uh, and he's at this point where he's just ready to give up. I'm done. I'm through with that. And God's like, no, we're not going to. I'm going to show you that I'm in charge of this deal. Um, and so the, um, God sends angels to Elijah to feed him. Um, and then we'll pick up the story here in 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. And it says, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now we see so much about God in these stories. Baal, who was worshipped by pagans in and around Israel, was called the thunder god. Um, but it wasn't just a case of, well, you call him Yahweh, we call him Baal. Um, same God, different name. No, it was completely different in the sense that what happened at Mount Carmel was that the God of heaven answered Baal didn't because the God of heaven is in control. The other one isn't even a God, right? Um, and the fire came down and consumed the altar and the rainstorm came to end the drought. But God created the drought too. Those were all things created by God. And then what happens at Horeb is even uh, a greater reality for Elijah because while the Lord passed by Elijah, remember, the first comes this great wind, and this wind had to be something, right, because it's shattering rocks. It's breaking rocks apart. Um, so think of the power of that kind of wind. Um, and then an earthquake happens, and then fire, but God is not in any of them. None of those things are God. All those things, though, were made by God, right? God is above all of that, behind all of that. He is their maker and their controller. He runs the show. Pagans worship the effect of God, but believers worship God, right? We worship the power and the glory of the Lord. Now, we see the same error in modern times when people talk about, like, the power of crystals, as if somehow crystals have the power of their own. They don't. They do have characteristics that God put in them when he created them. Um, and it's fine to utilize a crystal for a specific purpose, because that's why God created them. But we don't worship the crystal. It's not the crystal that has the power. It's the God that created the crystals that has the power, and we worship that. Um, but we find ourselves in a world that worships the cre creation, not the creator. We read in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than creator who is forever praised. Amen. And it's easy to make that mistake and get excited over what God does versus over God. We should be thankful for what God does, but we don't worship what God does. We worship God. You know, when God solves a problem for us, we should be grateful and thankful and praise God, not the solution. And I know people that, unfortunately, they praise their BMW, or they praise their really big house, or they've lost track of, those are just things. The eternal is what we praise. We give glory and praise to the Lord, not to stuff. 
So David makes an interesting transition here in, in 9 and 10. And really kind of this idea of, of, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You know, and this idea of putting God first. So we re- read at the end of 9 uh, through 11, it says, And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Now, there's a very creative use of time in this psalm, right? So at the end of verse 9, we see this demonstration of God's power, and those who witness it give glory to God, right, of the, of the event. Um, but more than that, there's this reflection of this creative power of God. Um, now, another one of my favorites here, this is in uh, Job. Um, and if you remember, at, toward the end of Job, in Chapter 37, there's one of Job's friends, and I use that in quotes because it's kind of whether they were friends or not, it's kind of questionable. But the point of it is, is this one guy, Elihu, goes through this long-winded explanation about who God is and why Job must be in trouble and all this sort of stuff, and then God steps in. He's like fed up with everything, and God steps in. So chapter, Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 7 Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. I'd like to be Job standing before God going, Okay, here's the test. (laughs) Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Now you can imagine Job and his friends, they know where they stand. <laughs> it's like, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? And I mean, you feel pretty bad for Job. I mean, he, he really didn't deserve what he went through, but he went through what he went through to show the power of God. Um, and the, you know, the friends are, you know, they've all this blabbering for so many chapters. That's the tough part about reading Job is you have to go through all the blabbering before you get to the great stuff at the end. Uh, but they understand that who God is, you know, this is all mine. Um, God created the earth and everything in it. And the cool part of this, the, while he was creating, the stars were singing and the angels were praising with joy. I mean, that's such a cool word picture. You know, stars singing to the glory of God in his creation, right? I mean, the very earth, the very rocks sing, right? Even if we keep our mouth shut, the creation yells his name. Uh, that's just, it's, that's really cool. Um, and God presided over the greatest natural disaster of all time, right? The global flood. Um, he managed to rearrange the world in this global flood. Um, and it says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, and he both destroyed the wicked and preserved his own people. And you'll see this pattern throughout the Old Testament where God is destroying the wicked and preserving his own, right? We, we read over and over how God preserves a remnant, his people, right? We see all that with Elijah and those that didn't turn to Baal, and he preserve those. We see during the two, um, what do you call it, when they got 
sent away to Babylon. I know that word will come to me in a bit. Um, <laughs> I know that's the problem with being old. We have CRS, you know, can't remember stuff. And uh, you'll remember it, but it'll be like 10 minutes later. Um, the, uh, so anyway, but like I said, there's this pattern regularly where God separates the, the, those that are good, the remnant, from those that are wicked. And that's going to happen one last time um, when Jesus returns. There's going to be a final separation from those who follow God and those who don't. Um, and it'll be done. Um, and the, you know, we see that at the end of verse 10. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. Now, it's interesting when we look again over time, where did God get enthroned, if you will? Now, remember in the Old Testament, um, they had the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant had a lid, and on the lid had two cherubim, and in the center was where God resided, um, called the mercy seat. Um, and the Ark of the Covenant was held in the Holy of Holies, and there was a curtain that separated it. And only the high priest could actually go in there um, and do what had to be done in the Holy of Holies to re representing the people. And they actually would tie a rope around his foot so that if he messed up and did something he wasn't supposed to do, God would kill him on the spot and they could at least drag him out because nobody else could go in, right? So, I mean, it was separation between God and his people. And even his people could only go into the area of the temple. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Um, and whether it was the tabernacle, the temple built by Solomon, the one rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah, that pattern is, goes through over and over and over again, right? So he is there um, in this limited position um, between his people. But that ended when Jesus came. Um, that separation that at Jesus' time, there was a, the temple was there, and of course it was on the hill in the center of worship, um, but when Jesus came and was crucified, that curtain that separated us from God was ripped in two. We all now could have access to God, everyone, not just the priests. Um, and we see that in this comparison between the old way and the new way, right? So Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 24, um, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a word speaking, such a voice speaking words that those who hear it beg that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Old way, new way. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the, meditator, the mediator of the new covenant, and to sprinkle blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His church is now his favored place. His greatness is displayed, acknowledged, and adored. And he unveils his attributes and commands the humblest of respect. And while the ignorant may forget him, the wicked despise him, the atheists oppose him, his chosen ones love him beyond comparison, love him 
for all that he is, for all the glory. We worship, we praise him. But more than that, we now are the temples of the living God. As believers, we have the indwelling spirit. As believers, God now temples in our hearts. It's amazing when you think that God, the creator, who put you together in your mother's womb to be exactly who you were supposed to be, created the very heart that he would reside in. That to me is just... He is greatly to be loved and respected by those saved by his grace. He is great in himself, great in mercy, great in power, great in wisdom, great in justice, and great in glory. We are to worship the power and glory of the Lord. I pray that during this monsoon season, when you see one of those big storms come up with lightning and thunder and all that, you remember the power and strength and glory of the Lord. Father, we are just so grateful for all that you do. Your power and your strength, that you have the ability to break chatter rocks and to strip trees bare, and yet your tender mercies embrace us, carry us through our difficult times, love us much as a mom loves a newborn child, with a softness and a tenderness, just ever so caring. So, Lord, we just praise your holy name and worship you as the only one worthy of worship. Amen.